In the spring of 1942, a new newspaper launched out of a cramped office in Central California's Owens River Valley. Inside that office, reporters punched away at typewriters, documenting the most recent happenings in their 10,000-person community. The latest sports scores, little dust-ups between the locals. Others turned away at the mimeograph, a hand-crank-operated copy machine furiously printing the next issue. This was the Manzanar Free Press. But the free press wasn't exactly free. It was run by Japanese Americans incarcerated at the Manzanar Relocation Center, a detention camp, writing what they could about life behind a barbed wire fence. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On April 11th, 1942, 81 years ago this week, the Manzanar Free Press was born. A newspaper written by Japanese Americans incarcerated by their own government at a detention camp in the California desert. There, a group of young journalists would struggle to document their grim reality while their belief in America was being tested. That's coming up after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Our story starts in Los Angeles, California in 1941 with a young woman named Sue Kunitomi. She was one of eight children born to Japanese immigrants. After graduating high school, 18-year-old Sue spent her days working in her mother's grocery store, just outside of L.A.'s Little Tokyo neighborhood. It's where she was on December 7th, when she heard the news that would forever change her life. Here's Sue speaking to the Manzanar Oral History Project in 2002. I was listening to a disc jockey playing all the popular music of the day. 
And announcer interrupted the program to say that Japanese airplanes had dropped bombs on Pearl Harbor. At 7.55 came the most treacherous attack in the history of modern warfare. Pearl Harbor was blasted by a sneak rate of over 100 Japanese planes. 173 of the 275... For two years, the Second World War had been raging overseas, pitting Allied powers, including Britain, the Soviet Union, and others, against Nazi Germany, Italy, and Imperial Japan. The U.S. had tried to avoid getting involved in a massive international conflict. But after Pearl Harbor, that changed. More than 2,400 Americans died in that attack on the U.S. naval base in Hawaii. The day after the bombing, President Franklin Roosevelt went to Congress. Since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Seemingly overnight, life in the U.S. changed dramatically. A draft sent sons, brothers, and fathers to the front lines. The government asked American families to ration things like food, gasoline, medicine, and other goods needed on the battlefield. And life for Japanese Americans, like 18-year-old Sue Kunitomi and her family, it changed radically, too. It didn't matter if people like Sue had been born in the U.S. Their Japanese heritage made them the enemy in the eyes of the government. By February, uh, it was pretty evident that they wanted us out of there. And they said, you know, there was a possibility that we would do something to sabotage the war effort and that they had to remove us. Since the bombing at Pearl Harbor, some saw the many Japanese Americans living along the West Coast as a threat, given their relative geographical proximity to Japan. They could be spies or saboteurs. In the decades leading up to the war, many immigrants from Japan, Sue's family included, had settled along America's West Coast in search of jobs. By the time of Pearl Harbor, that number had reached approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans. After the U.S. entered the war, the military designated certain parts of the West Coast as military zones. Japanese Americans were told they had to leave these areas and move inland, away from the coastal states. Congress soon passed a law saying anyone who didn't move east could end up in prison. The military began posting signs on lampposts and trees in cities like Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. They read... All persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, will be evacuated from the above area by 12 o'clock noon. Sue and her family had no other option but to leave their home and community. My mother sold her grocery store early in April, and we started to sell a lot of our furniture and our stove and refrigerator, which we couldn't take. Like virtually all Japanese-Americans living on the West Coast, the Kunitomis were forced to go to what the government was calling assembly or reception centers. We were told we could take only what we could carry. We were not to bring any furniture, no pets, 
of any kind, no knives, even kitchen knives. What we carried were the two suitcases. We walked with our suitcases to the train depot, and there were guards with rifles, standing guard. They had us pull all the shades down so we couldn't see outside and people couldn't see inside. And the train took off. 10 detention camps for Japanese Americans were established throughout the Western U.S. Some were repurposed horse racetracks or cattle stockades turned into tiny makeshift villages. Others were built from the ground up, like the Manzanar Relocation Center, where Sue and her family were headed. That 225-mile trip took a full day from Los Angeles up north into the central California forests. In the evening, they cut through the jagged Sierra Nevada mountains. In the dead of night, they finally arrived at their destination, Manzanar. We stumbled through the camp. It's very dark and all the barracks looked alike because they had black tar paper on them. After navigating their way through the narrow barracks, the Kunitomis finally found the one room where their entire family would be staying. The room was about 20 by 25 feet, had one oil stove in the corner and one light bulb in the center of the room. The family set their things down. There was a single mattress for each of them, the stove, a dresser, and not much else. When my mother got into the room, she sat down on one of the mattresses and she says, my, what a place. After that first night, Sue began to get a lay of the land the mess hall and the military administration buildings, the trucks that came in to deliver building materials and food supplies. She watched as armed guards marched around the one-square-mile camp perimeter. Later, she'd watch the barbed wire fences getting installed. Then, the towers went up. Each of them were occupied by an American soldier and a searchlight at night and a rifle with live ammunition. Amidst all these guns, fences, and guards, Sue was forced to come to terms with her new, unnerving reality. I was very disillusioned at the time because, you know, I kept thinking, we're American citizens and they're doing this to us and we have no rights, nobody to speak up for us. And I had studied high school history and read the Constitution. And and the Bill of Rights, and I just well, I couldn't understand why it was happening to us and wasn't sure what our future was going to be. Many of those imprisoned in the camp spent their days working. Sue worked in a factory making nets for the military. There, she laced together brown, green, and yellow vinyl strips into giant camouflage nets that would be sent overseas for the war effort. But after a while, Sue heard about a new opportunity. A call came out that the Manzana Free Press was looking for reporters and people to work 
on the paper. So I went over and applied for the job of a reporter, and I got the job. The Manzanar Free Press was written by, for, and about the Japanese Americans detained at Manzanar. For Sue, the paper really was an exciting opportunity. Back in L.A., she'd hoped to go to college, maybe major in English, one day become a poet. The paper was her chance to write. Sue began reporting out what she saw in the community. When I first got my job as a reporter for the Free Press, I was assigned to go up and do a report on a pond that had been finished. And they had a Japanese goldfish in it. Sue wrote about the little ways people fought for some semblance of normalcy. How some folks cleared out this one area to make a makeshift baseball diamond. How others built a small Japanese-style cemetery to honor those who passed. And how, all over the camp, traditional gardens were springing up. I think that they wanted to really beautify the place because it was such a barren and windy place. Sue was one of a handful of reporters putting together these stories for regular publication. And what started off as this very basic four-page community bulletin by the summer of 1942 had grown into a full-fledged, front-to-back, multi-column, newspaper newspaper. Headlines promoted musical performances. Music Hour features Beethoven works. Offered sports scores. Yanks Lab Wonders, 10 to 3 and provided updates on camp development. School building plans underway here. If you didn't know any better, it'd be easy to confuse the Manzanar Free Press for just another small-town American paper. Which begs the question, why were all of these positive pieces in a newspaper coming out of a detention camp? Well... If you ask Sue's son, Bruce Embry, he says there was a reason for such glowing coverage in the paper. And Sue knew it at the time. One of the things she recalls later on is she says, you know, we never were able to really talk about our personal feelings because we knew it wouldn't make it into the paper. The paper was censored. So she said, we never talked about the poor food, the horrible bathroom conditions. We didn't talk about the horrible living conditions. We couldn't. We couldn't really explain what was going on because they would censor it. The government agency running Manzanar didn't call it censorship, of course. Instead, they called it supervision. A public relations officer would give out story ideas. After an issue published, the camp administration might invoke their power to crack down on any writing they didn't like. Censorship light, if you will. Writers learned to work with authorities so they could keep publishing. Some of the staff were open to this oversight. Others, not so much. There was a real nasty rift that was showing up all around Manzanar. Eventually, this divide reached its boiling point. One that Sue and the Manzanar Free Press would witness firsthand. And my mother said to me, you better hide because they might come after you too because you're working for the paper. That's coming up.
Welcome back. Before the break, Sue and the rest of the Kunitomi family were forced out of their home in Los Angeles following the bombing at Pearl Harbor. They and thousands of other Japanese Americans were incarcerated at the Manzanar detention camp in the central California desert. Sue started writing for the Manzanar Free Press, reporting on daily life in the camp. The Japanese Americans detained at Manzanar were a diverse group. Some were rich, others poor, some conservative, others progressive. Some were more recent immigrants who spoke little to no English. Others were first and second generation Americans who barely spoke Japanese. Other than a shared heritage, some folks had very little else in common. But with everyone piled on top of each other, all these diverse perspectives and life experiences led to divisions. Divisions that Sue was growing increasingly aware of. The camp was being organized and developing into a, a city. There were also divided loyalties among different people. There were some who were considered pro-administration. This pro-administration group supported the efforts of the American military abroad. Some even supported rounding up Japanese Americans at home. So there was a group of them that had cooperated from the very beginning with the government. And a lot of people felt that they were spying on the community and, and turning people's names in because they felt they were not loyal Americans. The free press got caught in the middle of camp politics. Some living at Manzanar were growing frustrated with the newspaper's selective reporting and saw it as a sign that writers were potentially siding with the government agency running the camp. So all of these tensions began to boil. And these tensions would escalate into violence in December of 1942. It all began with a mess hall worker named Harry Ueno. Harry was a real man of the people. In the dining area, he'd pass out extra sugar so people could stomach the super strong coffee. He'd bake cookies, fry up sweet snacks for all the kids. He started to notice, though, that the very thing he'd been using to improve everyday life started going missing. He was going around checking on the supplies that were coming into the camp, and he found that sugar that came to each kitchen was much less than what they had originally. Sugar was precious in a world of rationed goods, and Harry believed someone was stealing his sugar and selling it on the black market. He suspected this one pro-war guy who was also incarcerated at Manzanar, but was known to be cooperative with the administration. So on the night of December 5th, Harry and a few other men decided to send that guy a message. Sue heard them as they went looking for that pro-administration guy. A group of men were walking down our block and it was very dark and they were all wearing their navy blue peacoats and only sound you heard was this trampling of their feet on the gravel. Harry and his friends found that pro-administration guy alone in his room and beat him up. He ended up in the camp hospital 
with bruises and cuts on his face. Sue was worried those men would come after her, too. The newspaper was seen as pro-war by some people in the camp, making her a potential target. But camp authorities arrested Harry before he got to anyone else, and they took him to a jail off-site. The next morning, word spread around Manzanar about what happened. Soon afterwards, a crowd started to form outside the authorities' office. Harry was popular and had a lot of supporters, and they were there to demand his release. By 1 p.m., the crowd had grown to 2,000 people. Around 1.30, the head camp officer called in armed personnel. Twelve officers arrived on the scene. They got tear gas and they've got guns. Sue's son, Bruce Embry, said that the crowd of Japanese Americans didn't seem intimidated. They're singing songs. There's a story about several of them running up and mooning the military police. Now these are American citizens. They're like, we're Americans, we have rights. Bruce says the military police responded by yelling racial slurs. Protesters responded by throwing stones. They went back and forth like this for hours. Until, finally, around 9.30 p.m., the commanding officer had had enough. He made the call for his men to fire tear gas into the crowd to break up the protesters. Running away from the tear gas, a group of men saw a car. They released the parking brake, and it rolled down the hill towards the police. Well, at that point, two military police open fire, and they shoot 11 men to die. The two protesters who died were a 21-year-old sales clerk from Tacoma, Washington, and a 17-year-old student from Pasadena, California. So the, the uh, 17-year-old man who died was a, a young man named Jimmy Ito. And he was a good friend of my uncle's. The autopsies and medical reports later showed that Jimmy and the 10 other men were shot in their backs and sides while running away from the police. But that's not what the military later claimed in court. Their defense, may sound familiar to some, was we were being rushed and we feared for our lives. Right? They were acquitted. The officers who killed the two men were later absolved of any wrongdoing. After the uprising, it was a tumultuous few weeks in Manzanar, including for the free press. They suspended the newspaper so we couldn't go to work. Anti-American tensions in the camp were at an all-time high. And since some detainees in the camp saw the paper as aligned with authorities, free press staff started receiving threats. One of the editors was attacked. Some writers were moved out of Manzanar for their safety. But with Christmas around the corner, camp authorities allowed Sue and the other writers to start the free press back up with a holiday issue. In the middle of page six, next to a black and white drawing of Santa and an ad from Sears and Roebuck, there's a death announcement for each man killed in the riot listing their name, the day they died, and the block they were assigned to in the camp. Nothing more. 
No mention of how they died, of the military violence, or even of the protest itself. This omission is a reminder that, despite its name, this was not a free press. Inside of a detention camp, how could it be? The Manzanar Free Press published its final issue on October 19, 1945, just months after the war ended. Soon after, the camp shut down, and the last remaining incarcerated people walked out of its barbed wire fences for good. In the end, after all the mandatory relocations, the forced imprisonment, the violence, the racism, the generational damage, the U.S. government's so-called concerns about Japanese Americans, unsurprisingly, were unfounded. As far as I know, by the end of the war, there were no convictions or arrests of any person of Japanese ancestry who was, you know, accused of conspiracy or sabotage or espionage. Today, there's an annual pilgrimage back to Manzanar. Thousands of people, survivors, family members, and others, visit the site in April of each year in an act of remembrance for those who endured incarceration and to document a history that could have otherwise been erased. Sue helped start and oversaw the pilgrimage before she passed away in 2006. Now, her son Bruce runs the committee that organizes the annual event. They were really designed to get young people to the site and explain what had happened. And again, tie it into the understanding of what America was all about. And help understand and be able to deal with the inevitable racism that they were going to confront in America. The history of Japanese incarceration during World War II is tragic. And at the same time, I can't help but notice how the story is also filled with so many ironies. American soldiers being sent to defend freedoms abroad, while the U.S. forces its own citizens into camps. A free press, a foundational American value, being monitored and censored by government officials. These ironies aren't so surprising when you consider how invested America is in upholding its greatest myths. Maybe more invested in upholding those myths than actually making them real. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, we'll learn about telling stories from the past, from the perspective of an actor tasked with bringing real historical figures to life. This is a very larger-than-life, amazing woman, but also she was human. And she went through, like, the same tears that we all prize, the same insecurities, sadnesses, happinesses, love, you know. The rest of our team is producer Olivia Briley, 
Our associate producers are Nick Del Rose and Laura Newcomb. Our intern is Jasper Jarecki. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Laura Morris. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Voice acting by Ben Britton and Alexandra Roth. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at CSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. If you want to learn more about this year's Manzanar pilgrimage, head on over to manzanarcommittee.org. Special thanks to Shelley Shinoy, Brian Nia, Sarah Bone, Dana Hoshide, Renee Tajima-Pena, Patricia Wakita, Takea Mizuno, Professor Art Hansen, the National Park Service and the Manzanar Oral History Project, and to Densho for the invaluable work they do documenting the history of the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzika, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, and Liz Stiles. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. Check out our new comment feature in the Spotify app. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Resilient. Um, Why do we have to be resilient? (laughs) It's the same reason why I don't like this thing about tolerance, teaching tolerance. You're going to tolerate me? No, no, no. You're going to respect me. You're going to treat me as an equal. I'm not resilient. I'm pissed off.